This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, June 22nd, 2017, the Lump of Coal edition. I'm Emily Bazelon. I'm hosting the show this week because David Plotz is, I don't know where David is, but he's not here with us. That's okay, though. We have with us John Dickerson from Face the Nation. Hey, John. Hi. And subbing in for David, we are thrilled to have with us this morning Julia Yaffe, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic. We're so glad you're here. On this week's Gab Fest, first, we will dissect the results of the uh, elections, the special elections in Georgia and South Carolina. Democrats are in mourning because of the loss of John Ossoff, their darling in the Georgia 6th. Republicans are feeling excited and relieved. What are the lessons from this special election, as well as the less tended to but still interesting one in South Carolina? Then we will talk about the Senate health care bill. Um, Mitch McConnell and the Republican leadership have been conspiring to prevent us from having any kind of substantive discussion, but we're going to try to do that anyway. The Republicans say they will release this bill today, perhaps by the time you listen to the show, but the key provisions may be in flux through next week. This is pretty much unprecedented for a bill of this scale, so we will talk about what is going to happen. And then it's June. So that means it's the time of year for Supreme Court blockbuster decisions. For such a long time, the Supreme Court only had eight members and wasn't taking any big cases. However, the court announced this week that next term it will hear a challenge to partisan gerrymandering from Wisconsin. That indeed looks like quite a big case. So we'll talk about that case and how it's likely to come out and what the issues it raises are. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter and insight. Plus, we'll talk about some of those smaller Supreme Court decisions. There were two on free speech this week, one about trademarks that disparage people and one about a law that banned social media use by sex offenders. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. This was the most watched, the most soaked in money special election since November about the money part, maybe ever. Republican Karen Handel beat Democrat John Ossoff by 52% to 48% in the Georgia 6th District. She will fill uh, former Representative Tom Price's seat. In South Carolina, flying much more under the radar, the Republican Ralph Norman defeated Democrat Archie Parnell. Um, much, much less money spent there. This is to fill Republican Mick Mulvaney's seat. Both Price and Mulvaney left their seats to join the Trump administration. So, John, what are we supposed to make of the Ossoff race in particular, the Democrats' huge focus on it, 
And then to step back for a minute, we've now had five special elections, I think, since November. Republicans have won four. Democrats have won a single one in a safely Democratic district. How worried should the Democrats be? How relieved should the Republicans be feeling? Uh, well, I think in general, Republicans should feel good. They've stayed, they've been able to hold all these contested races. They've withstood, particularly in this race, a very strong uh, Democratic push. On the other hand, Democrats can feel good that they did better in these special elections than Democrats normally would have been expected to do, certainly because these are all Republican-leaning districts. And now somebody would say, well, it doesn't matter. In politics, it's only about wins and losses. That's quite true. The reason we care about these races is because there are they're a predictor of what may or may not happen in 2018. So just to remind people, there are 24 seats the Democrats would need to take to regain control of the House. There are 26 districts in which Republicans uh, are incumbents that Hillary Clinton won. And those are the districts that we'll all be watching and paying attention to. If you take the better than expected Democratic performance in the specials that they lost and applied that to the races that are in these 26 districts, the Republicans would lose control of the House. Now, that's if some butts were candies and nuts. Oh, what a Christmas we'd have. There's a long way away between here and there. But it's a Democrats are have reason to despair for a number of other reasons that this causes a political moment to have that conversation, the fact that they have septuagenarians leading the party, the fact that people can't tell you what the Democratic Party message is, which is in part because Donald Trump controls all the political conversation, that there's a debate inside the Democratic Party about whether it knows what its message is. All those things can exist, and, and this can give rise to those conversations, and that not necessarily isn't necessarily something that would have change the outcome in this Republican-leaning district. Um, so that's a really long answer, a, a, a way of saying it's basically a mixed bag. So, Julia, John Ossoff ran a kind of bland, inoffensive campaign. The calculation was that he was in a highly educated, mostly white, Republican suburban district with, I think, a $73,000 median income, and that a like rabble-rousing Bernie Sanders-style campaign would have been the wrong fit. Do you think that, I mean, obviously, we're Monday morning quarter or whatever it is, Thursday morning quarterbacking here, but do you think that the Democrats just made a mistake by not taking this race as a chance to really shape a forceful, substantive message? As much as these races are about relitigating 2016 and trying to get Republican voters to rebel against a, Repu a new Republican president, uh, they seem to be running, you know, trying to play it safe. And Republicans aren't, you know, they're, I, I thought what was so interesting about this race was um, Dave Weigel of the Washington Post wrote about this very effectively about how tribal this was and how when Republicans might be embarrassed by Trump, they might wish that he laid off the Twitter a little bit more or completely. But when push comes to shove, they're not going to go after a Republican president and the tribal political identities kick in. I think Democrat going into 2018, they're going to have to contend with that, which is what happened in 2016 as well. This this kind of the political tribalism. Right. And also the people are rooting for a team and they don't want their team to lose and they're not ready to give up on their team. Right. And, and, and this team uh, this team has um, an offensive but popular captain. I mean, 
I don't know how many times I've read the same uh, the same headline over and over again about how Trump's approval ratings sink to historic lows, but it doesn't matter because Two he's still days. quite popular with Republicans and they're not turning on him or other Republican candidates. The the tribal the benefit the other ways in which the tribalism really works and is important is that um because as Pew has tracked over the last several cycles, we are more partisan uh, now. A majority of Democrats and Republicans are have very unfavorable views of the opposition, which is um, nearly double where it was in 1994. More of us now think that the other side is evil as opposed to just being the opposition. So they were able to use Nancy Pelosi, as they have successfully Republicans in the past, as a as a boogie woman, uh, but then also say that Ossoff is not one of us, uh, both because he didn't live in the district, although he'd grown up there, but to paint him and to use this tribalism to basically absent the president from the conversation, but make it very much about um, those emotional things that get people going. And that's all totally alive and well and presumably will be alive and well. In 2018, although Jonathan Chait as a and the other reason this matters for Democrats is that if they had won one of these races, it would have helped perhaps with some Republican retirements, it would have helped with raising money, it would have helped with getting more Democrats to run. Because if you're running as a Democrat now, you know you're going to get a lot of money spent against you and it's going to get personal because it's not going to be policy wise. There's not a this wasn't a policy debate. But one other just fact I would throw in there that Jonathan Chait brought up is that in 2009, Democrats not only won four straight special elections, they also flipped a House seat from a retiring Republican. And we all know that the 2010 elections for Democrats, despite those successes in the, in the special elections, were a disaster. So, so that's the danger of reading too much into right. this for the that's Republicans. Right. That's right. right. I, I, that's exactly the right lesson to take as opposed to the exact, you know, the exact thing's going to happen to Republicans. No, it's just let's remember that um, special elections are, you know, special things. Also, it's a year away, over a year away, right? And if we just consider the last, what, it's been 150 days of the this presidency, which feels like about seven and a half years. So, you know, if you extrapolate in the next year, we're going to have, you know, 15 years, 25 years of political events happening and perhaps shaping the discourse. Who knows? And on his current trajectory, geologic time. Yeah, his trajectory in terms of approval rating and toxicity has not been going in a direction that that Republicans love. How is it moving among Republicans? Isn't that the more relevant figure? It is. And there's been well, a little bit. There was in an AP poll last week. There was there was a greater share of or a larger number of Republicans felt unsatisfied with the president or had a disapproval rating of the president than had than we had seen in the past, which now one poll, one moment in time. But it was the it was the first time that Republicans were saying, well, this is a crack in the Fifth Avenue rule, which is to say Trump's argument that he could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and not (laughs) have it hurt him with his with his base. The other thing that is interesting is that obviously in 2018, it's going to be a more direct referendum on the president. This was obviously painted as one by both sides. Or no, sorry, he won't be on the ballot. He won't be. But the House Democrats will be able to run as a check on the president. Uh, Having said that, the Republicans in this tribal team competition will also be able to say, hey, you've got to have the president's back and or don't give the power to Nancy Pelosi. So, yes, Nancy Pelosi, one of the other things Dave Weigel wrote about, which was so interesting, was a bunch of direct mailers um, where you could see a kind of more naked attack on Ossoff by tying him to Pelosi. She was like the puppet master in one of them. He's like 
taking off his mask and there's Pelosi underneath. She is even more unpopular with Republicans than Trump is with the population at large. And that has led to questions in the Democratic caucus about whether it's time for her to go. Is it? I mean, is she a big enough political liability? She's supposed to be a pretty masterful legislative strategist and whipper of votes. So it's not like it would be cost-free for the caucus, I think, to get rid of her. And a lot of caucus members are loyal. I wonder, though, if her hailing from the wealthiest district in the country, the kind of quintessential caricature of a San Francisco liberal, if those things are weighing the party down. On the other hand, you could argue, look, like if it's not her, they'll find someone else. We shouldn't sacrifice her on this particular altar. Julia, what do you think? Can I just add some questions to that? Um, First of all, is that I I just, you know, I'm not a domestic policy wonk, but I'm wondering, like, what is the logic and has it been done before where you oust your congressional leader to please the other party? Well, that seems crazy when you put it that way, but she's more broadly unpopular. And and also the other thing is just Republicans who don't like her. The other thing is, I don't know, I like she's just as conniving and, you know, if you, if you put it, if you kind of zoom out, she's just as conniving as, say, Mitch McConnell, just as old as Mitch McConnell. Like, why is she so unpopular among like is McConnell as unpopular with Democrats as Pelosi is with Republicans? No, he's he's uh, Paul uh, Ryan is even more unpopular with Democrats than Nancy Pelosi is. Uh, but the thing about Pelosi, I mean, so first of all, the Democrats are the the team that is losing. So like the idea that they would. But do you s- sacrifice? Do you sacrifice your team captain to the other team if you're losing? Well, sometimes you do. Like you fire your coach all the time. OK, yeah. right? OK, um, OK. But I don't. So part of me thinks this is nutty. Go ahead, John. Sorry. No, go ahead. You have you have a, a passion. In well, your... I was going to say, sorry, part of me thinks this is kind of nutty for the reasons you say. If Pelosi is an effective leader, the fact that she is getting attacked doesn't seem like a good reason to get rid of her. On the other hand, and I may be kind of importing this to Congress from my feelings about the Supreme Court, I find the notion that people are indispensable when they've been in power for a really long time, maybe too long to be just like problematic. I, I get impatient about that. So I don't know, maybe I'm like mixing up Nancy Pelosi and, you know, Anthony Kennedy or Justice Ginsburg, people who have had an enormous amount of power and are really old and don't seem to want to go anywhere. Anyway. So, well, I think that it's, I guess two things are possible. It could be possible that Nancy Pelosi should go, but only if Democrats have learned the right political lesson from their challenges. And that lesson may not be demonstrated or uncovered by the losses in these special elections. So that's the thing that Democrats have to figure out, which is Nancy Pelosi has a huge other important thing that she does, which is she raises a great deal of money for Democrats. And the Democrats need that money to run races. So the smart Democrat who's doing the math on this has to think, okay, what are the most important things for those 26 races that we're going to target? We need a lot of money. And that may arguably be the biggest thing if it's still the mother's milk of politics. Republicans are going to do anything they can to to um, portray the Democratic candidate as a you know a captive of Nancy Pelosi. So if she's gone, what do they? You know, maybe they'll use uh, you know Chuck Schumer. Um, the problem is that this is always the problem with John Boehner. You know, who are you going to replace Nancy Pelosi with? And 
the person- And will that person be effective? Will A, that person be as effective as she has been? B, will that person, because they have to gain the majority of votes in a Democratic Party that is different than the Republican Party, is likely to be a person who the Republican Party will still be able to characterize and caricature as not one of us. And so- Maybe it'll be a yeah, little less effective. He, he or she would he not she, be one of us. Right. It'd be the other party. That's right. It's like the, de facto, not one of us. Exactly. And therefore, while it may not be as potent as the attacks on on uh, Nancy Pelosi, what's is the tr- what's the trade off? It will be somewhat potent. And is that worth that um, slightly less potency? Is that worth giving away her ability to raise money? I assume that's the kind of calculation you would want to make if you're. But you also get this thing, which is people are just like we gotta like we gotta just fresh some Democrats. Clean I think house. have a feeling we just gotta freshen freshen it up and and like it's more a hope than a strategy. Right. I guess what strikes me is that the Democrats do seem to be having trouble convincing regular people, at least like regular white people, that they really have their interests at heart. You know, this elusive white working class. And Pelosi, because she comes from such a wealthy district, does seem like she could be alienating in that way. No, I mean, I agree. So could Chuck Schumer. He's certainly aligned with high-powered, well-endowed uh, financial interests in New York. But I do wonder if you had a more like Midwestern, you know, this this sort of person that the Democratic Party doesn't have a ton of right now, um, but doesn't have no one like that in the House. I mean, Tim Ryan from Ohio, who challenged Pelosi and is using this loss in the Georgia six to criticize her again. He's someone who at least on paper fits that profile. I guess what I care about more is this question of the Democrats coming up with some more substantive message that some idea of what they want to do for the country, how they're going to make the country better, as opposed to just relying on Trump's wildness and unpopularity, because that just seems like it is not going to be enough. I just keep thinking back to the Women's March. Uh, Bear with me here. And how pointlessly cathartic it it was, I think, to some people. You know, people made funny signs and they uh, knitted pink uh, hats and they came out and they raged against the new president. But, you know, how does that translate to political action? If you look at the Republican Party, they have been playing the long game for a really long time. They have had their kind of nose to the grindstone, very methodically, carefully pursuing these long-term political goals as opposed to kind of being whipsawed all over the place like the Democrats. And if you some of this reminds me of the of the Republican hand-wringing after the 2012 election and the, you know, infamous autopsy when they did, when Republicans concluded that they needed to court the Latino vote and then 2016 came along and they said, "Actually, no, screw the Latino vote. We just need to buckle down on the craziest part iterations of our principles and just get a better candidate and that was it." So maybe rep- maybe Democrats just need to do the same thing, just, you know, batten down the hatches and plug a- keep plugging away at this. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know what that means. I guess I feel like Republicans have been really good at building a bench, that's for sure. And they've understood the importance of these local races and of grooming people to run for higher office through those kinds of political careers. But their essential priority right now is to cut taxes for rich people. And that's not a wildly popular message. And yet the Democrats haven't 
really run with yeah. that. I mean, John Ossoff didn't run against this hugely unpopular health care bill, which we're supposed to talk about. He didn't even really run against President Trump. And there seems to be something a little timid about that, at least, um, you know, in retrospect. I guess one other just one other point about tribalism very, very quickly is that um, in the wake of the shooting last Wednesday, and when everybody was talking about tone and rhetoric and politics, the argument a lot of us made was this is going to be super fleeting these ta- this talk of unity and and kind of coming together because the structure of politics incentivizes other kinds of behavior and we'll talk about that with the healthcare bill but also in this race this notion of painting the other candidate as the other relies on a sustained effort to excite the fears of your voters by saying this person is not just a person who holds bad opinions, but this person has bad motives and is culturally a threat to you at this kind of elemental level. And if if you're playing on those very effective uh, sound notes, then you're creating a situation where you're just you're like these unity moments are just gonna, we just can't exist in that atmosphere. This episode of the Gabfest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right. For our second topic, let's talk about the Senate health care bill, um, which we don't know all the details about right this moment, but we do know the basic contours. We are talking about a giant cutback for Medicaid, which covers poor people, probably about $800 billion less funding, some question of how many years it will take for these cuts to come into effect. But uh, most importantly, an essential just reorganization of this incredibly important insurance program, it, which it will be capped in a way that will just leave some people out in the cold. We're also talking about less regulation or fewer protections, depending on how you want to see it, for people with pre-existing conditions, because the rules for the essential health benefits that health insurance subsidized by the federal government for, those rules are probably going to change. So what we're really talking about is whether sick people are going to be able to buy affordable insurance that is really worth something. Two dimensions. We're talking about that in terms of the healthcare exchanges that Obamacare set up. And then we're talking about Medicaid, which isn't something that people purchase, but is something that has been a safety net for poor people in a way that now seems to be really at risk. 
So, Julia, as we mentioned, this is a hugely unpopular bill, but it also has some serious momentum behind it. I keep asking myself, who wants to be the 51st vote who is going to stop this bill? Which brave Republican is going to throw themselves um, into that particular abyss? Because it means being the person who would be to blame for not fulfilling the party's promise to repeal and replace Obamacare. Do you think that that dynamic is strong enough to power this through? Do you think we're likely to see this bill pass by July 4th, which is what Speaker McConnell has said he wants? Or maybe will we see a dynamic like the one we saw in the House where the first jump at this fails, falls short, but then it comes back before the August recess? Well, I don't know. I I put a lot of faith in um, McConnell's rules jujitsu. I think he tends to kind of get what he wants. I just... I just think this whole thing is just it's so breathtaking, I have to say, the the kind of the amazing bait and switch, right? You had people voting in 2016 to repeal Obamacare, in part responding to that drumbeat that has been going on for seven, eight years now, I don't recall. But they were also voting for a president who said insurance for everybody. And part of what his kind of white working class base was about was not touching benefits like Medicare and Social Security. And you have that guy in the White House, but the guys in Congress who are doing this are, you know, Republican ideologues who this is a return to pure kind of conservative philosophy, right? That getting the government out of out of healthcare cutting back its role, cutting back expenses and um, spending at any cost, which is not quite what people were voting for in 2016 when they voted for Trump. It is. I mean, it's fascinating to I mean, the the problems with the House bill that the president identified more than two months ago was that it was that it was too tough on his voters. Then in the private meeting last week, he told Republican senators that it was too, that the bill that came out of the house was too mean. There's nothing in this bill that, that uh, significantly fixes the mean problem. Yes, there is some, there are some uh, subsidies that help poor people. The change um, for coverage of older people is based on income, income, not age, which makes more, makes more sense, but it's not going to fix the problems on the meanness front. And so the over time and also Medicaid, which people think of as, you know, for poor people ends up for anybody who's had to go through this ends up being what a lot of uh, us use to take care of our parents or that people use when they run out of money at the end of their lives. And Medicaid is no it's not like some cushy. I mean, it is, uh, you know, good care in a nursing home, but it's. It doesn't pay for everything, and you're in a shared room, and it's uh, it's it's. No and I guess my point is, it's no frills, right? And and also we should note at the other end of the life experience, nearly forty percent of children are covered through Medicaid. The long term care covers two thirds of Americans living in nursing homes are covered by Medicaid. And what's the percentage for births? Forty yeah, percent of like children half. are covered. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, crazy. but I think for a lot of in the political sense, a lot of people think of it. Well, that's just for sort of poor people. Um, well, I. Also, I don't know how much, you know, part of the the weirdness of 2016 was that people didn't, uh, even Democratic voters, didn't understand that the Affordable Care Act equals Obamacare. I wonder how many voters 
for example, Republican voters understand that Obamacare also equals Medicaid. Yeah. Right. I think that's a really good question. A lot of Republican voters, though, it's being sold as the end of a of a bloated entitlement. And I think what uh, will be interesting to see is how much when when this is sold, it's sold as revamping a bloated entitlement, which sounds very good, particularly if that entitlement is is framed as something that's kind of just for poor people, not something you are going to have to embrace in your in your life in one way or another. And the word entitlement, but, just getting back to our earlier conversation about political tribalism, the word entitlement implies that it's stuff that other people get. Right. People not on your team necessarily. I find this puzzling, though, when you look at those percentages of what that we just reeled off about how many people get covered by Medicaid at the beginning and ends of their lives. Why do we have the idea that this is a program for poor people? It just seems like it's actually wrong. And the other thing that keeps striking me is like the people I know who are on Medicaid really, really need it. It's like the last part of the social safety net that exists. And if it wasn't there, they would be having to go to the emergency room in really dire circumstance. It's like a one of the steadier things in their lives. And I just, it makes me honestly like horrified to imagine living in a country without that. And I know that we lived in a country where lots of people didn't have health insurance for years, and there are still people who don't have health insurance. But the idea that the most vulnerable people in the society are not going to have access to basic health care in this incredibly rich country, I just find it shocking. My my mother is a physician in um, a state hospital in basically the inner city. My sister is about to start being a doctor there too. And I wonder, you know, what kept jumping out at me in all these stories about who was getting to see the bill um, as it was being read under clouds of cigar smoke in back rooms was that lobbyists were getting to see it. And I wonder what lobbying groups like hospitals think about this, because when people don't have insurance, they come through the emergency room and often those bills are never paid. These end up being huge costs for hospitals. And, for hospitals, right. Yeah. So the what, 10 biggest insurance companies wrote a letter this week that was just uh, you know, denouncing this part of the bill, in particular this idea of capping Medicaid. They were just very strong in their language about it. Now, you know, that doesn't mean they're putting their advertising dollars behind stopping mm -hmm. the passage of this bill. So, you know, well, there's some uh, question there. But And also you um we were talking about well why don't people realize that this is a Medicaid is something that covers more than just the inner city poor. I think the some of the senators who are likely to be unhappy, Republican senators who are likely to be unhappy with the Republican bill from West Virginia and Ohio, Colorado are reflecting that change in the program. I mean, that's maybe that is the way in which people are recognizing. And those they're from expansion states. Alaska would be another one where the reality of Medicaid will will affect the system in that way. We should talk quickly about the fact that they, um, just to remind, this only needs 50 votes in the Senate, um, which is why Democrats aren't part of the conversation. Republicans are trying to pass it just with their own Republican Which is forces. ironic, right, given their criticism of how Obamacare was passed. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing about this bill is that it does not do what Republicans have promised, right? Republicans promised that premiums were going to go down, that they were going to cover everyone. President Trump used the word beautiful for his healthcare <laughs> promises. There's just this whole um, rainbow of health care assurances that this bill is the opposite of. 
that is supposed to matter in politics, you know, so they ran the bill through in either July or August, then it actually goes into effect. They're not going to be able to hide the consequences of that. So either Mitch McConnell is making a short term political calculation for his donor class and his base that will backfire politically in the long term, or he will prove right that even if this is deeply unpopular, it's not going to play a big role in the 2018 and 2020 elections. Now, one would think, given that we're talking about a sixth of the economy and an aspect of people's lives that they feel acutely when having medical issues, that you can't promise the rainbow and then deliver like I don't know what's the opposite metaphor of a, a rainbow. Of like, yeah, coal, a lump of coal or like a giant rainstorm on people. But John, do you think that that truth is going to hold? Like there's something about McConnell's thinking here that I don't entirely understand. Well, I think we're, we've all been circling around that. He's trying to pass what the grassroots wants, which is get rid of Obamacare. Just like get it done. Be done with it. This You promise this, you must do it. Promises kept is a stronger argument than whatever the technical uh, complaints may, people may have about the about the actual it, program. Don't some of the provisions of the Senate bill um, have this kicking in like seven years from now, which is, right, pass it now, repeal, reap the benefits of promises kept today, kick the can down the road and have it turn into, okay, I'm going to mu- bungle this metaphor, no. but have it blow up on somebody else yeah. seven years later. Well, that's, uh, I yes. think, particularly with Medicaid, the Senate bill puts off the pain for a longer period of time, but then makes it sharper once it does kick in. What'll be interesting to to hear is how Republicans argue what they think will have changed in the healthcare market to allow for a smaller defined benefit on Medicaid. What what do they think is going to happen with health uh, health inflation, with the way people behave, um, that's going to so drastically lower costs on Medicaid? Or do they think states are going to be able to come up with those massive kinds of efficiencies that would be required to take these lower payments. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. For our third topic, the Supreme Court announced this week that next term it will hear the case Gill versus Whitford. For the first time in more than 30 years, a lower court, these were three judges um, in Wisconsin, struck down the redrawing of district lines in Wisconsin, saying that they went too far toward tilting the electoral map um, in favor of Republicans. The lower court judges were relying here on a new method of calculating gerrymandering called the efficiency gap. And so the idea here is that you can use computers very efficiently to draw maps, and you can also calculate how many votes are being wasted. In other words, how well the Republicans in this case, though it really can be either party, are scattering or packing together the votes of Democrats in a way that minimizes their power. And in Wisconsin, the Republicans have been really good at this. They've taken a state that is essentially evenly divided between Republican and Democratic voters and created a legislature that heavily favors Republicans because of the way the lines are drawn. 
So, John, the lower court told the Wisconsin Republicans to redraw these lines before the 2018 election. When the Supreme Court took this case, it also said by a vote of five to four that that lower court order was not going to stand. In other words, the 2018 lines are going to stay the same unless this case got decided incredibly quickly, uh, which I'm sure it won't. And that five to four vote was conservatives versus liberals. So on the one hand, Democrats have been excited that the court is looking at this case. It looks like maybe a chance for partisan gerrymandering to get some legal oomph behind it as a way of eliminating district lines. But then we have this ruling that suggests that maybe the court is comfortable with how the lines were drawn in this case. And that particularly that Anthony Kennedy is comfortable with it, which is the jump ball justice that needs to be paid attention to, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, that <laughs> that's my only, I got, you know, I just have no notion of the court here. I was intrigued by um, two questions. One is why the court would have taken this when it seems like the court's been reluctant to meddle in this area and where people have argued the court shouldn't meddle in this area. Don't make it a leave it up to the legislatures or nonpartisan uh, committees or whatever. So that's the first question. The second question is, aren't the districts in Wisconsin? They're not those salamander type districts. They're basically square. So does that make it a harder case? I'm now asking you, Emily Bazelon. I think the salamander argument doesn't matter a whole lot anymore because the computer modeling has become so sophisticated that essentially in some states you can do an enormous amount of work toward partisan gerrymandering and keep things relatively compact. The question really is, and this really comes down to Justice Kennedy. Let me just give a quick background. The last time the Supreme Court looked at a partisan gerrymandering case was 2004. And um, four conservatives said, essentially, we never want to get into this business. This is up to legislatures. If they want to put independent commissions in charge of this stuff, that's up to them. And the voters are going to have to fix this, not us. Justice Kennedy voted on their side, but he said that he could imagine a case in which if he could come up with a workable standard that showed when partisan gerrymandering went too far, maybe he'd be open to that. And so that's why he's so central here and everyone is looking to him. And that's why this model of this efficiency gap and wasted votes seem important. I should also mention that there are going to be like a million friend of the court briefs that come in offering different kinds of calculations. If he doesn't like the efficiency gap, someone will present him with another alternative. And in the same way that the computer modeling is hugely sophisticated, it's become a bigger and bigger risk that essentially voters are divided up in ways where it's very hard for the out-of-party power to retake the legislature. You know, this idea of if you are wasting up to 10 or 12 percent of votes, which is what was happening in some of the districts in Wisconsin, you know, 10 or 12 percent statewide, like you're just not going to retake that state. You think of that as a huge handicap that you're giving the losing side. And so that would be the reason that the court, that Kennedy might be move to step in here, that you've created such an imbalance. And remember, Democrats do this too. I mean, Maryland is gerrymandered toward the direction of Democrats. So both parties have something on the line here. And so could you actually have a percentage that you could fix upon this? Yeah. In other well, words, the- since computer models can can try and argue for a percentage of wasted votes, uh, you know, is 12% too much? Because obviously the court allows for some percentage of spoils going to the winner in the creation of districts for partisan purposes. Yes. Yeah, so the right? plaintiffs it's not zero. In this, 
Right. The plaintiffs in this case argued that the number, the magic number should be seven, that you could go up to 7%, but not over that. You know, you can argue about whether that's the right number. But I think the notion that this is something that's able to be mathematically determined is kind of important here. Um, right. That like there would be a way to actually measure this. And then you could think about in political science terms, how far skewed you could, would allow that number to go without essentially like threatening the sort of pillar of democracy, which is that one party can take over from the other party. Julia, I have another question for you. And even though the court has been incredibly reluctant to intervene in partisan gerrymandering cases, there's this whole other line of doctrine that's about racial gerrymandering because of the Voting Rights Act. And I just wonder like what, <laughs> if that makes any sense to you that we would have one set of rules for gerrymandering by race and then essentially right now no rules for gerrymandering by party so that the way you gerrymander if you're the one in control is you say like oh i was just trying to you know entrench my party in power i wasn't trying to um mess around with the power of minority voters does that seem like a satisfying kind of intellectual answer to this question no i was actually going to ask you that uh about what if there is any kind of constitutional basis or legal basis for saying, um, oh, it's fine, you know, to if, for the gerrymandering to be partisan, just as long as it's not racial. But if it's partisan, that that's fine. That's just, you know, how the system works. How would, for example, the Georgia 6 special election look if or would have looked after let's say the Supreme Court rules on this, overturns this and says, you know what, this is unfair. You have to use this Kabbalistic magic number of seven. The answer is seven. Would something like the Georgia six race have looked any different? Well, Georgia is a place where there have been arguments over racial gerrymandering. So the answer to your first question is the reason we have this whole line of cases about racial gerrymandering is the Voting Rights Act, which has been interpreted to say that its protections for minority voters apply in redistricting cases. There's a tension between that and the Equal Protection Clause in the Constitution, which the Supreme Court has interpreted to say, like, the government's not supposed to take account of race in making decisions unless it does things in this very narrowly tailored, compelling interest way. So Republicans have argued for a while, a lot of them, including people on the court, that that this redistricting application of the Voting Rights Act is just like wrong. That's what Justice Thomas thinks about this. Mm -hmm. And the answer to your second question. So now we're talking about uh, the kind of relationship between gerrymandering and what I always think of as the big sort. Is that Richard Florida's term mm -hmm. from the Atlantic? Yeah, he's a author who wrote a book by that name, I believe. And that's the idea that like Democratic voters in big cities are wasting their votes by living where they live. I mean, you know, I live in an incredibly blue city in New Haven. Um, if I moved out to the redder suburbs of Connecticut, my vote would be worth a lot more in state legislative races. That's my choice about where I live. And that element of um, how Republicans have gained more power in legislative and congressional races, that is not that particularly affected by the argument over gerrymandering. In other words, like, even if we had a very robust set of protections against partisan gerrymandering, there would be a ton of wasted Democratic votes in urban strongholds just based on where people live. Right. But how? Why not have, for example, super tiny districts, let's say urban districts that 
geographically or in terms of square footage or square mileage are teeny tiny but have the same amount of people. You know, they get one representative in, the let's say, the state legislature, but they have the same amount of people as a sprawling kind of suburban or rural district. Well, so we have one person, one vote, right? And so at the moment, I believe right. it's like about 500,000 people per congressional seat. And unless you imagine a world in which like you take one neighborhood in New Haven and attach it to like a neighborhood in a rural town 30 miles away and divide everyone up like that, if you have any notion of compactness, if you have heavily democratic big cities, then you have a concentration of democratic votes in those places. I am deeply interested and curious about Gill versus Whitford, this um, Wisconsin partisan gerrymandering case. So I will make sure that we get to talk about it again when it actually gets argued. Let's go to cocktail chatter. Um, Julia, this weekend, are you going to the beach? Will you be drinking at home, at a bar in Washington? <laughs> whatever, wherever you'll be, whatever drink will be in your hand, what will you be chattering about? Well, actually, I'm going to be in New Orleans for a dear friend's wedding. Oh, nice. Um, yes, except I think we're going to be indoors because of this tropical storm that's uh, hitting the Gulf right now, if I ever get down there. But I have a feeling I'm going to be talking a lot about the Russia investigation because that's anybody. That's all anybody ever wants to talk to me about these days is Russia. Uh, what I found really interesting and newsworthy. I mean, these days, so many newsworthy things happen and just get kind of drowned in the tide of of Trump news, of larger political news. But there were some pretty significant hearings on the Hill this week. Uh, Jay Johnson, Obama's Secretary of Homeland Security, testified in front of the House Intelligence Committee. It was really interesting to me because this was the first hearing really, and of course, therefore nobody paid attention to it, but it was the first hearing in which people actually talked about Russia and what Russia did in interfering in our 2016 election as opposed to what the Trump camp may or may not have done. And what I found so interesting about what he said was it it, it just showed, you know, he said it was impossible to get get in touch with the DNC when they had been hacked. And when the FBI did get in touch with them, they kind of brushed them off and said, well, handle this. We don't want the gov- the federal government involved in this. Uh, it, there was a lot of finger pointing about, you know, whether President Obama should have, could have said anything more earlier and if it would have offset or made worse any effects of the Russian meddling. And what I found really interesting about this is it finally addressed our side, kind of the American side of what happened when the Russians interfered. All along, we've been talking about this as we're this kind of passive sitting duck and the Russians are interfering, 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 and our reaction doesn't matter and isn't contributing and amplifying the effects of what they're doing, which in fact it did, you know, if, if the DNC had been more cooperative, if they had answered, if, you know, if they weren't hanging up on the FBI, things may have looked different. If Obama had said something earlier, things would have looked different. You know, he was apparently afraid of putting his thumb on the scale and picking sides in the selection, which is strange because he was cam- out campaigning for Hillary Clinton and saying really nasty things about, um, President Trump. So, all, all of this stuff is important because it was, it's part of why the Russians were effective 
in 2016. So it's a lesson to be learned, right? That response matters as well as their, the Russians. Absolutely. Effort. It also showed how disparate their efforts were. They were trying different things and they pulled the triggers on some things like hacking data and then dumping it and not on other things like meddling with voter rolls or, you know, the election infrastructure, the voting infrastructure. And our response mattered. It, it hugely mattered. And it really amplified what they did. So hopefully, and I don't have much hope for this, but hopefully uh, we can have more hearings like that, have more discussions about what the U.S. can do in the future. Because like James Comey said, and I agree with him in his riveting Senate testimony, the Russians will be back and they'll be back to maybe help the Republicans in 2018, maybe not. 2020, 2022, they'll be back because it worked. And the question is, how can we respond effectively? John, when you are drinking, what will you be drinking this weekend? Mint juleps, mimosas, Tom Collins. Is that even a <laughs> <Tom> drink? <Collins. laughs> what uh, will you be chattering Harvey about? Harvey Wallbanger. Uh, I'll be go. chattering about, I was, uh, I'm rereading Slaughterhouse-Five with my uh, son this summer, and Vonnegut talks about the Bible that one of the characters carried that was, um, that was called a bulletproof Bible. And so I looked this up, and I felt like I kind of knew about it, but anyway, I looked it up. And it's this great story of marketing and faith and uh, just different times. There, um, so there were these Bibles that were, that were given to soldiers in the Second World War. One of the companies that made these Bibles was called the Protecto Bible Company of St. Louis. And the Protecto Bible was a Bible that, was, that would fit in your pocket, and it had a cover that was made of steel. And this was written on the steel cover. It said, may this keep you safe from harm. And the idea was that the cover of the actual Bible would stop a bullet if it was shot at you. And and they were sometimes called uh, God's weapon, which was the other um, thing. And it was sometimes the New Testament, sometimes prayer books. And they, uh, some of them had a note from the commander-in-chief, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which read, as commander-in-chief, I take pleasure in commending this, the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces in the United States. Throughout the centuries, men of many faiths and diverse origins have found in the sacred book words of wisdom, counsel, and inspiration. It is a fountain of strength and now, as always, an aid in attaining the highest aspirations of the human soul. So obviously there would be a theological question about um, sending people off to fight a war with the book of a prophet who preached peace. But nevertheless, the what I learned later about this, though, is basically this was a marketing gimmick. This Protecto Bible company and the other companies trying to sell them were basically trying to find ways to to sell bibles and so they created Two in one. yeah multipurpose so function you this all comes full circle in this ad that was um that I found on a, uh, a site called weirduniverse.net. The Protecto Bible Company ad from 1951. Now available again, the sensational item of World War II, genuine military-sized bulletproof heart shield Bible. The engraved gold-plated bulletproof front cover actually saves lives. They sold so fast during the last war that nobody could keep them in stock. One of the greatest money makers in the last five years. And it goes on uh, to talk about the great um, benefits of the Protecto Bible. This would have been on the eve of, um, of the Korean War. So the final point is about the Protecto Bible 
is that it couldn't protect anybody from anything. Now, there were stories. There was a story. Oh, no. Yeah, there's a story from World War One about a guy, who, a British soldier who carried an actual Bible, not a protecto Bible, just a regular old little pocket Bible that did stop a bullet. But this great uh, YouTube channel called Deuce and Guns actually did the Mythbusters on it and fired a variety of different World War II caliber ammunition at the not at specific protective Bibles, but at something that was a uh, simulation of the same and didn't stop anything. Um, so, uh, alas, if you were carrying a protective Bible, it would uh, protect your soul, but maybe not your actual body. Mine is really dark. I'm going to have to have a stiff drink before I actually talk about this. But um, like a lot of people, I think I watched the video of the fatal shooting of Philando Castile, um, in Minnesota, who was in his car when he was killed by a police officer. I just could not believe that this police officer wasn't convicted. I know there's a really high legal standard. I know that we're talking about what seemed reasonable from the point of view of the officer, whether he felt a reasonable fear and that he, this officer testified that he felt that fear, but the, instantaneous. I mean, it really just takes a few seconds for this officer to react as Castile and his girlfriend. Castile says, I'm armed, which is supposedly what you do to defuse kind of confrontation like this. And then he and his girlfriend are trying to assure the officer that he's not reaching for his gun. The officer never says something like, well, put your hands on the dashboard or some way of just changing the confrontation physically. Um, We can't see into the car, but it just... um, is breathtakingly fast, um, this, um, this killing that happens. And then afterward, the officer is completely freaked out and amped up, which is understandable. But, and maybe I'm just interpreting here, it seems like what he's freaked out about is that he's just killed someone. The other video that got released this week that just broke my heart is a video showing um, the girlfriend of Castile, Diamond Reynolds, handcuffed in the back of a police car with her young daughter. And her daughter is just so afraid, um, is screaming at her mother not to try to take off her handcuffs so that she doesn't get shot herself. And just feel like there is just something so deeply wrong with this whole interaction. And apart from the fact whether this police officer deserved to go to prison, it's just such a instructional moment of exactly the kinds of police community relations that we don't want in this country. Like the kind of suspicion and fear that um, just destroys people's trust, their ability to count on the police um, when they're scared as opposed to fear them. So I'm going to end on that rather bleak note. That's our show for today. The Political Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. The managing producer for Slate Podcast is June Thomas, and the executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. Please subscribe to the GabFest and Apple Podcasts and review and rate the show while you're there. It really, really helps us. For John Dickerson and Julia Yaffe, I'm Emily Bazelon. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you next week. Yeah.